been good enough I'm a little bit rusty and I think my head is caving in And I don't know if I've ever been really loved By a hand that's touched me and I feel like something's gonna give And I'm a little bit angry Well, you like Matchbox 20? I don't know him very well yeah. 90s. Yeah. What's his name? Rob Thomas, I think, is the uh, lead guy. I wasn't into them, into them in the 90s, but I like them a lot now. So I should probably check them out more other than 90s. If it doesn't fall into bluegrass or country, <laughs> probably don't listen to a lot of it. <laughs> bluegrass and country. All right. So uh, we're using this song, Push, Matchbox 20, to tee up episode 53053. We got Preston True, the one and only. Wicked Smat. Wicked uh, Smat. That's right. Um, so and we're talking about how things get ugly when we're not in our sweet spot. And that's why I teed up this song, Push. It's kind of like, man, things are getting ugly around here. And uh, a lot of times we're not in our sweet spot because we just don't know what that is. We don't know how to find it. We don't know anything about in, in an organization, maybe, uh, what our strengths are, what our abilities are, where they are not, where our kind of area of excellence might be. Uh, not so much like in a task sense, like, oh, I'm good at math. Or I'm good at the books, or I'm good at selling, but more in a beha- behavioral sense, uh, more in a productive, like, hey, here's where I do my best work is when I'm working like this. So, Preston, we're talking about uh, what is this thing called? The working genius, working six type genius. of working genius, Pat yeah. Lencioni. So, A, awesome to see you. Always love doing this with you. Well, You're uh, one of the best. You guys are awesome. I mean, you and Shane, just thanks again for the invitation. Once again, to be with you guys. It's just, and it's not just certainly talking about working genius, which is a lot of fun. A lot of fun doing that work, a lot of fun working with people with that, but just like being here and hanging out with you guys and solving the world's problems, understanding what our sweet spot might be and where it's showing up and where we're like, well, no wonder that work stinks. Speaking of sweet spot, what did you just pour in my glass, buddy? Okay, so uh, what we've got is um, Mammoth Distilling, Central Lake Michigan, for those, those listening who are... Somewhere in the vicinity of the state of Michigan, um, about 45, 50 minutes northeast of Traverse City is a little town called Bel Air, and straight north of that by about another 15 minutes is Central Lake. It's got a stoplight. So it's a pretty big town in northern Michigan uh, based on that. Mm. They just do some great work. It is Shorts yeah. Brewing. If you're familiar with the, the Shorts, like Soft Parade, Humalupalicious from the beer world, they decided to get into the mead business as well, yeah, and then good. and then the spirits business. So, this is a, a few years in the making, mm-hmm. um, but we were up there this summer for a week just to get away and share time with family, and stumbled across uh, Mammoth Distillery because mm. there was a dude playing acoustic guitar out on the sidewalk, and 
was awesome. And we like, oh, this is great. I'm like, where's this little tin, right, for donations? She's like, no, go in and have a drink. I'm like, oh, what's this all about? So always, always good evidence that life's always an adventure. Yeah. Just pay attention to what's around you. Yeah, and yeah. Have some fun. Yeah. So here you go. Thanks for bringing this, buddy. Slancha. And and I've, back at you, whatever that. Like, what did you what did you just say? Slancha. Irish. I believe somebody, <laughs> an Irish buddy of mine said right. that's Gaelic for cheers. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mammoth. Is this a rye? Yeah, I'm not a rye guy, but that's mm. actually really good. Yeah, it's interesting. I like it. There's a. What's going on with that? It's got a little like licorice. Yes, exactly. I think that's really oh. cool. That's that very, sounds really good. Interesting. It is good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kudos to Mammoth. Oh, Mammoth goodness. Rye. Mm. Bourbon is so weird how much subtlety there is in the different ones. In the. Oh, this is a tangent. Well, maybe not. Uh, talking about like doing the work that I put it in the context of like God's given these amazing gifts, right, to all of us. And one of them that for me is truly like a gift from God is the whole concept of bourbon. Mm. And just like the story and the history and the politics and legislation and culture that's around it. Yeah. There's a really amazing documentary on i mean you just look for it it may be on youtube uh for free hulu netflix um called neat n-e-a-t and it's just a fascinating 90 minutes of just the history Mm. of bourbon and just the stories that that spirit tells uh in regards to the united states um culture bringing people together Mm. conversations Conversation starter, amplifier, maybe sometimes a conversation ender. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting stuff. Mammoth Distillery Rye. Speaking of movies, I saw, uh, I think it's Lawless with, uh, oh, what's his name? I just forgot forgot his name. Um, He was in Warrior, the the big guy uh, in Warrior. Uh, He's in in a bunch of movies. Tom Hardy. Uh, yes. <clears throat> Lawless. Uh, uh, Jessica Chastain, uh, Shia LaBeouf, LaBeouf. Lawless. So good. It's a family in uh, Tennessee, and it's a, it's a bootlegging, moonshining story. Mm. It's a true story, apparently. Fascinating. Really well done movie. Bunch of good acting. Uh, really great storyline. So Lawless is one. What's, the, what's, what's another movie you've seen recently that like, you'd recommend? <sighs> I love Fury. Uh, it's just I keep coming back to it. Um, with Brad Pitt. That's a brilliant film. Yeah. It's just, it's just so, and, and again, Shia is in that one too. Uh, others I keep coming back to. Um, some of them are maybe a little, I don't know, less profound, but still really good movies. Uh, the greatest game ever played Shia again, Mm. uh, is it's a true story of, uh, Francis Wilmet and, uh, uh, Harry Varden, and it's a head-to-head playoff in the uh, U.S. Open. I think it was 19, it's in the teens. Um, I think Taft was president or something. I don't know when that was, teens, early teens, 20, 1912, something like that. Fascinating little movie. 
Great story. Golf. Feel, yeah, feel-good movie. Very, very good. Okay. Very, very sweet. It's actually a really sweet father-son mm. story. Um, Peanut Butter Falcon, again, another Shia movie. Oh, so my gosh, dude. It's so I, good. I watched it on your recommendation last time I was Did here. You? Wow. Unbelievable. It's crazy. So good. Crazy story, huh? It's so heartwarming. So good. Yeah, that really just... Mm-hmm. Boy, if, you, <laughs> if that doesn't create a tear mm. or two... Yeah. You officially yeah. do not have a heart. Yeah, you are a wooden. You have a wooden <laughs> heart, right? You're a knucklehead. Yeah, so that's, those are some go tos uh, lately. Love it. All right, so Preston, you are a business coach, like I am. You and I are in the uh, same world with Pinnacle. We, you and I came from the same world, the orange world, as we like to say, and which is a fine world, but it's just not as good as the one we're in now. Oh, this one's fine. Right. This one's better. Uh, and uh, we have been palling around for, I don't know, five years or six years or something like that. And it's so fun to share things back and forth, uh, what, what we're all learning, what we're seeing, you know, swap tools and stories and hacks and so forth. And you're just really good at this working genius thing. And that's why we wanted to talk with you today was to get you to just uh, explain it, how it works, uh, what it's good at, maybe what it's not so good at, perhaps what to pair it with, perhaps uh, kind of some tips and tricks for an entrepreneur. So if they're, you know, just kind of some good takeaways for an entrepreneur and go, okay, now I know what to do with this thing, you know, because they're they're knuckleheads (laughs) too. (laughs) Bless their hearts. Uh, I started a thing uh, lately. I don't know if I told you this. Uh, I maybe I did. The uh, the Brotherhood of Alpha Delta Delta. I don't think you did. No, yeah. it's a fraternity. Alpha Delta Delta A D D A D D. So uh, we're he, he would have got there eventually. Yeah, he would have got there. Yeah. So we're we're putting out some content <laughs> around cool little quips and little funny barbs about being a card carrying member of. The Brotherhood, Alpha Delta Delta. Which actually ties perfectly into your working genius. <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> well, that's why it just was a native idea. Track. Like, dude, it just came right out of me. I'm like, hey, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Wonder and invention, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be more people like me. Where are they? Oh, we'll form a fraternity. There you go. <laughs> Build it and they will come. So how did you get exposed to the six types? What was your first, I don't know, uh, experience with it? I'm a huge Patrick Lencioni fan. And it's been interesting kind of unpacking, I want to say, so there's the assessment tool they've come up with that's known as the working genius, the six types of the working of working genius. Mm-hmm. And we'll certainly get into, into more of the specifics of that, but... You know, Mark, as a as a coach, and we probably have talked a little bit about this. I, I'm my face a huge part of my life. Um, I'm a I've become an enormous fan of the hero's journey, this monomyth, and we're all on a journey for every role in our life. An example: my 18 year old daughter is off to college for the first time, and being a father of um, a daughter is a journey in itself, being a father of a daughter who's now left the house and is in the much larger world and having to be completely, well, self-sufficient to a degree. 
um, like that launched me into a whole new journey. So I'm fascinated with this whole idea of journeys. And like Lencioni tells stories that teach really great lessons around business and organizational health, team health, like how we can be smarter, stronger, faster people, and therefore smarter, stronger, faster teams. And he does it from a faith foundation. And so like, it's a long way to say, I've just, I've, I've, been enamored by his work and the work of his, the table group, uh, his consulting firm out in, uh, in California. And so when they rolled out this assessment tool, working genius several years ago, it's like, I'm all in, like, I, this has got to be good. I love simple, easy to use tools. And this is a terrific example of mm -hmm. that. So Ultimately, it was reading a bunch of his books from Five Dysfunctions to Death by Meeting to um, uh, Ideal Team Player, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorites. I think the audio book, the, t the book, the printed book title is The Truth About Employee Engagement. And I believe the audio book title is the exact same book. It's just a different title, Three Signs of a Miserable Job. Mm -hmm. I like that one better mm -hmm. because that's where you actually see disengagement is in the form of misery. Um, but he just makes understanding people mm -hmm. and teams and organizations really easy. Mm -hmm. So like if he's coming yeah. up with an assessment tool, that's going to help me understand me better yeah. and then help a team understand themselves and how they work as, as a composite better. Yeah. Like, why wouldn't we do that? So, yeah, he's, he's passionate too about being helpful. You know, you and I were there together at that, uh, unconference. That's I loved right, that. That was such a great time. Um, and, uh, met, met him and all that stuff. So I love how uh, in intentional he is, not just from a professional, you know, like, yeah, he's got a great business doing this stuff, but he really does truly care about trying to make things for people work better and get people to be happier because they're in a better spot and, in a, you know, figuring things out organizationally as far as structure and Culture, especially organizational culture, I think is kind of his, his kind of groove, you know, but so he, he wrote this book. Did you, when you first read it, did you read it in print or listen to it the first time? Uh, I read it, uh, in, in print mm -hmm. maybe three months ago. Yeah. So I took, I did the assessment two years ago when they first rolled it out and and they, they more recently published the book. Mm -hmm. So the, the book is a laggard in terms of mm -hmm. this whole right. tool being available. Yeah. Um, but again, similar to his other, many of his other books told in a fable mm -hmm. version of a story of an organization going through some trials and tribulations and then mm -hmm. finding some answers. Um, you know, I think probably what attracts me to this, and you and I know we were talking about this. Well, you had David Guest, our friend, mm -hmm. uh, David Guest. Um, isn't that David quick? Thank you. David quick. But <laughs> yeah, who's, what's that, the but... guest of movie fame? That's David guest. Oh, I don't know. Oh my gosh. He was a six fingered man. Anyway. And Nago uh, Matoya. Yeah. No, oh, no, the other guy. He was the meat and he is the, the, the other the guy, guy that Nago Matoya was looking for. Yeah. <laughs> Prepared to die. Uh, David quick. My apologize. <laughs> anyway. Um, you had David Quick on uh, with the Culture Index. Mm -hmm. Great tool. Mm. Amazing tool. Um, I was certified years ago in Colby, Kathy Colby's uh, assessment. Um, there's Myers-Briggs. There is 
strength finders. There's mm-hmm. so many. Which uh, of those do you have some familiarity with or usage a little bit? Colby and Working Genius are the ones mm-hmm. that I know most intimately. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I've got you know enough to be dangerous knowledge and some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Myers-Briggs probably would be the next one. Okay. Uh, there's a very complex, very effective, but very complex tool um, called the Leadership Circle, mm. which actually our buddy Tip Quilter mm. uh, is also uh, certified in that. Anyway, we, the point is there's lots of them out there. Mm. They all serve a variety of purposes. I don't believe there's one best tool. There are people I've met that said, like, this is the one you need to do. I don't, I'm not recalling if they said that because of application. Like for this particular application, this is the right one. But I look at it, we were talking about this before we got rolling today. The, one, of the, one of the most important aspects, qualities, or characteristics of a leader is self-awareness. That's it. It's not like experience-based. It's not skill set-based. It's actually a characteristic, incredibly high self-awareness where you... We're using humility as an example. Self-awareness means I understand humility. I understand when I should be humble. And then self-awareness also means I understand there are times when I should not use humility. I need to be more forthright, uh, perhaps more, not to say proud, but firm in my position or my belief or the direction that I'd like to take an organization or team. Oh, you're, not, you're just saying that I, I know how to dial it in. Mm-hmm. And that's where this tool, I have found a lot of simplicity and ease in using self-awareness. Because that's all it's doing is presenting a, an opportunity for self-awareness through these six types. And in, inside of the six, there are two that Lencioni calls your working genius. There are two that he calls your working competency. And there are two that he calls your working frustration. There's no opinion using with this instrument around capability. In other words, actually, there is an opinion about capability. The opinion is everyone is 100% capable of all six. So my working frustrations don't mean that I suck at those things. It means that's not where I'm going to spend my time. In fact, I might actually work to avoid that kind of work or engaging in that type of activity. So it's not about inability uh, so much as preference or energy or life-giving or happiness or sweet spot. So they put it, Table Group puts it in two domains, joy and fulfillment. Okay. And again, it goes back to... I. There's a lot of strength finders is a really interesting tool, but I've always been fascinated that I cannot remember my top five. Mm. I literally can't. And I've seen it a bunch of times. I can't remember it. Mm. Um, I even like, I have to pause with my Colby. Mm -hmm. Um, I I have to really pause and can actually do some research. Like what was my Myers-Briggs profile? Yeah. Working genius from day, like the moment I took it, like I know look, there it is. It's two of them. And the other four fall in some other domain that I probably should organize my life, my role, 
my work, organize myself around a team to have other people engage in those four other things. And so I can focus on the two that work, work best for me. Um, but coming back to that concept, and again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to assert something that, that doesn't do it justice, but joy and fulfillment are two human experiences that are so deeply ingrained in all of us. Like who would not want to be joyful? Who would not want to be fulfilled? And especially in the world of work. So work being defined as activity that delivers value in project form. And I would I will make an argument for a while with anyone to say everything in life is a project. I mean, yeah. getting married and being married and staying married is a project. Having kids and raising them is, is a project. Starting a business is a project. Mm -hmm. Us being together today and a podcast is a project. Like There is nothing in life that can't be packaged in project form, which means there's a start, a middle, and an end. Like if you can understand how you engage in executing, if you can understand your most valuable role within a project context, you're actually going to have, you're going to experience more joy. You're going to experience more fulfillment. And if we turn that into equation, joy plus fulfillment equals productivity. Like that's the tool that Lencioni came up with. Yeah, that's a good one. I wrote that down earlier when we were talking before we started. I wanted to ask you about that uh, joy plus fulfillment equals productivity. And I would say you said more joy, and I would argue that it's just, just joy. Like, it's you, you're joyous or you're not. And I'm like, man, it'd be nice to be joyous, <laughs> right? To just have it uh, seems to me that, uh, and fulfillment, same thing. Like, man, are you fulfilled? You know, would you have that satisfying, like, yeah, you know, it's like, uh, Miller time, you know, or right. like those commercials from the 70s, 80s, whatever, you know. I remember as a little kid, I'm like, oh, that looks fun. After work, you're just kind of like kicking back with your bros, you know, and drinking a, you know, uh, Miller time. <laughs> and I, Miller is, I think it's the most awful beer. I, and it's one of several awful beers, I think. But uh, Miller? Yeah. Yeah, it's not so good. Um, I remember... Growing up in Chicago, the old Milwaukee commercial. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. Don't get no better than this. I'm like, that has always stuck with me. I'm like, well, of course. Like, if you're experiencing joy and fulfillment, it yeah. does not get any better. That's right. Than that. Yeah. My so, dad, not, to, uh, not to equate yeah. working genius with old Milwaukee. Right. And old Milwaukee, I don't think, is all that great either. My, my dad would uh, stuff a six pack of that in his workbench and he would, we would find it and sip on some of it. And I'm like, man. It's nasty. Why are you drinking this? It's got to be like we tried to force it down. You know, it's like, well, you must. There must be something about this, but it sure tasted <laughs> terrible. Well, you, you, I think what you missed out on was you needed to pop it in the microwave for about seventeen oh. seconds to warm it up a little bit. It's much better. Really? Are you? I mean, like, come on, buddy. <laughs> I can't tell if you're kidding me or not. And it sounds even worse. <laughs> oh wow. All right, so Lencioni pumped out this work here. So what are the six? First of all, just go through the six, uh, the six types of working genius. So I'm going to put them in the sequence that they put them in. It actually spells the word widget. Really? W-I-D-G-E-T. Did he do that on purpose? I'm not sure. Huh. Possibly. Um, wonder is the first. So 
as well to give context to the sequence. Remember a moment ago, we talked about everything in life is a project. So there's a start, there's a middle, and there's an end. So when you engage in a project, one of the first things that typically happens is there's a level of curiosity, curiosity about how could we be better? Just asking questions. How could we be better? Is this the best we can be? Why is this happening? What might be next for us? So when you think of the concept of ordinary worlds or status quo, wonder is going to challenge that by just being curious. Wonder doesn't want the answer or solution. Wonder wants the curiosity, wants to ask the question or reveal the opportunity. Every project starts with something about status quo is not working because if it were, we would not launch a project. I, invention. So the next step in this six-step sequence is inventing an answer to questions or a solution to the problem that wonder asks or presents or reveals. So those with the genius of invention love to actually invent or develop, come up with novel ideas, a new way of doing things, answers to questions that help us move forward. The next is D or discernment. One thing that I've noticed, and this is with clients, well, I'll notice about myself, but also clients is wonder and invention. They're terrific at uncovering the opportunity and coming up with a potential solution, answer, or direction, but not every solution, answer, or direction is the right one. So discernment is a very important component or genius to have in this sequence along the lifespan of a project because we want to make sure that we assess, we qualify, we analyze, we debate to make sure that we actually have the right answer, the right solution, the right path forward. From there, once we say, okay, we've got the opportunity, we've got the solution or answer, we've qualified it, this is the right direction or the right way to go, now we need to get a team assembled and started, like human energy to go in a particular direction. That's the galvanizing, the G. So we galvanize people around the idea. This is not the best word to use, but think cheerleader that they're inspirational, they want, or captain of a team, they, of a ship, they want, they're going to take the, everybody along with them. Mm-hmm. An idea without people acting upon it is always going to remain an idea. We're not going to actually extract the value from it. The next is E, or enablement. So we've galvanized, we've got a team assembled, they're inspired, we've got the solution that we want to implement. Now we just need to start implementing a solution or solving the the, the problem, creating value for a, a client customer in, in our world. That's standing alongside people and helping. Like just let's get our hands dirty. Let's we're all in this together. Let's let's you know build the building, let's solve the solve the problem. And then the final T, tenacity, they're the ones that are, will assure we stay on time, on budget, and most importantly, bring the project across the finish line. So you can imagine when we start with wonder, which just explores the opportunity, and finish with tenacity, 
all of those components do their job, but then we need to bring it to completion because that's really where the value, that's where we exchange all of our work for the value. Because last time I checked, like a client doesn't pay for things that are unfinished mm-hmm. mo- most, of the, of, most of the time. Yeah. Um, or projects remain open and therefore don't actually deliver the value they could if they're left open in some fashion. So he realized that in those sequence of six, what they call types, I guess you could call them characteristics, is that each one of us have a combination of two of those six are the working genius, meaning that's where we garner the greatest joy and fulfillment. And if we go back to that equation, joy plus fulfillment equals productivity, we can assume that we're going to be most productive if we spend our time and our energy and our focus in our genius. The working competency, I'm going to, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go, so that's the working genius. Let's go to working frustration first, then I'll come back to competency. Frustration are those two of those types or characteristics, perhaps types of work in a project format, we'll likely avoid. We get the least amount of joy and the least amount of fulfillment. And if it's the least amount of joy plus the least amount of fulfillment, it's the lowest level of productivity. Mm-hmm. So, And what I also love is from a very pragmatic perspective, working genius is all about productivity. It might describe who you are a little bit. You know, my um, invention and discernment are my two working genius. Uh, galvanizing and enablement are my working frustrations. It doesn't say like, well, Preston's a great problem solver. That's who he is versus he's not a real great people manager. Like I'm neither one of those things. I'm just Preston. Mm-hmm. However, where am I going to be most productive in managing people or in actually solving problems? problems. Mm-hmm. I would assert the, the, the latter of, the, of those two. Mm-hmm. Now, working competency is middle ground. And it's interesting because what I've learned is that's a really dangerous place to be, largely because we spend enough time that we've trained the world to think we're actually good or we enjoy that type of work. So what does the world do? Shane will come to me and say, Hey, Preston, wonder and, wonder and tenacity are, are your competencies. So he'll come to me and say, can you help hold us accountable to getting this project finished? Well, I'm capable of it, and a decent amount of time in my life is spent engaging in that, but I don't get a lot of joy and fulfillment. Shane, bring me the problem, and let's go to work solving it. But holding us accountable to timelines, eh, it's kind of okay. Why it's dangerous, we can get caught spending an enormous amount of time in that. And based on what this instrument tells us, like you're going to get mediocre joy and mediocre fulfillment, which is going to lead to mediocre productivity. Mm-hmm. So if I bring everything back to, if we bring everything back to productivity, like why would we not, why would I not want to set myself up or you, Mark, or you, Shane, to be most productive? Because that's how ultimately we're all going to deliver the, the most value. Yeah. <clears throat> joy, and fulfillment, f- the joy and fulfillment seem to me to be also engagement. Like, well, if you're full of joy and full f- fulfillment, you're, you're dialed in. You're like, man, I'm, I'm all in on this thing, which is I'm engaged. So Lencioni wrote that, I uh, mentioned ideal team player. 
excuse me, the truth about employee engagement or the three signs of a miserable job. And in that book, it asserts that there's three, there's three signs that someone is disengaged. The first one is irrelevance. Someone just does not understand how their work plays into the larger value of what an organization is working to accomplish. So how do we get people more engaged? Well, we actually, it's just the opposite. Let's help them understand the relevance of the work that they're doing. Anonymity is the second one. They're just not known. It's almost like how many people you're driving up and down 4th Street, uh, if you will, and like you, you notice there are people on the sidewalk but you have no clue who they are. Like they're somewhat anonymous. They're there, but they're not known. People are disengaged because they feel like they're not known. They're not recognized. So what's the opposite of that? Like recognition. You actually know, you appreciate somebody for who they are. And then the last one is immeasurability. We just don't have any way to say, well, how's Mark doing in the role that he's playing? Well, we don't have any metrics. We don't have any measures. And there's not a right one. Literally, you can invent them. But there's no way for Mark to understand whether he's winning the week or losing the week. So what's the opposite of that? You make it measurable. I mean, that's it. Like, so what's interesting is working genius plays into all three of those. If I'm working in invention and discernment, in my case, I know exactly how to measure that. We're solving problems and problems that actually, sorry, solutions that actually stick and add value. So it's not just solving problems, just coming up with, well, what's two plus two? It's, you know, four and that's it. Doesn't, it's really no relevance unless that's a critical problem for us to solve. But as long as I'm in my genius and I'm doing that work of invention and discernment and solving problems and dialing in and making sure it's the right one, like I'm going to be able to measure success because we'll literally see the value of those solutions being implemented. Second, if I'm crystal clear on my working genius and I'm spending most of my time there, I know my working genius. And when I'm working in that, I don't need to have the outside world recognize me as much as like I'm working in that. I'm going to be known as someone who solves problems effectively. So it's going to take care of the anonymity thing. And ultimately, because my problem solving will add value in the right situations, it's going to be completely relevant. So it's interesting how Lencioni ties in, and I could probably dive into a whole bunch of the others, five dysfunctions, an ideal team player as well, that working genius is truly a key to higher levels of engagement or a key to solving deep levels of disengagement. And again, yeah. it's like, if I'm working in my frustration, you said it a moment ago, why would I be that engaged? Right. You know, you said something about self-awareness, talking about leaders. Some, I'm trying to put all this together and thinking about my clients and their struggles. And often a leader, a person with the role title, um, they would like their people to be engaged. But when it comes to actually trying to figure out how to get them engaged or do whatever adjustments are needed to fix it, that's where they become disengaged, the leader often. Uh, and I don't know that 
it's a hard thing to say. How do you tell someone has self-awareness? Like what, how would you, what are some, I don't know, observations? I mean, it's such a weird, it's kind of looking at somebody and going, how do you, how do you know if this person has athleticism? Uh, you know, cause I, we're going to, you know, play golf, right. Okay. Or soccer or something. Well, you ought to start with some athleticism, <laughs> you know, and if, if you don't have any of that, you're going to be in trouble no matter what, no matter what clubs or what shoes or what coach or what field or what, you know, training modality, right. You're starting off with a lack of ability right from the get go. And I agree that self-awareness is a non-negotiable and a leader, but I've just been thinking about how do you, how do you, uh, advise someone about their, their level of self-awareness. So I'm going to use the world of work as an example. If I just, if I can distinguish where I can add the most value for the organization or for the project that we're working on. And I can distinguish that from a hobby. It's like golf for me will always be a hobby. It will never be something where I will add a great deal of value. In fact, I usually, as most of my former golf buddies know, because they no longer invite me out, which is wise, is that I will do more damage to a course than mm. I will to you know, the, the scorecard, right. Um, golf's always going to be a hobby. Yeah. Now, if I kept going out and saying, Mark, you're a, you know, you belong to a country club and you're golfing all the time. Like I'm like, you're, you're in these scrambles or these tournaments. Like you should invite me. Like I, I always play golf. If I'm constantly saying you should invite me, but you know, I'm terrible. I mean, it's like triple digit Preston on nine holes, right? Um, that like you'd probably wonder, like, yeah. does this guy have a clue? Yeah. So usually, when we have the experience of, does this guy or does this gal have a clue? That probably is an indicator that person doesn't have as great self awareness. Now, I can say, and by the way, it's not. I don't. I don't. Self awareness is not uh, ubiquitous. In other words. There are places, there are blind spots I have where I think I'm much better or I think I'm worse. And what's interesting with working genius, the invention and discernment, I realized people have complimented or acknowledged me for that type of work. And I've denied it because it's actually in my blind spot until I recognize like, Oh, that, those are actually gifts I've been given where I, I personally get lots of joy and fulfillment and therefore the world gets higher levels of productivity. That awareness, so then again, that's another example of like the lack of self-awareness was if I'm denying the acknowledgement or the compliment or I'm denying working in a role that's better suited for my genius, then I'm probably practicing a lower level of self-awareness. So let's bring this all back around to something more practical that, that we see on a regular basis. You're with a leadership team. You're in a quarterly planning session. 
and you're reviewing some form of an organizational chart, an accountability chart, and you realize one of us in the room is not in the best seat. Like we actually would add value in a different seat, maybe a different functional area. And there's a level of resistance from that person when we have that conversation. In other words, they're unwilling to look in the mirror and say, you know what? Based on my performance or based on my levels of engagement or joy and fulfillment, you're probably right, Mark. That might not be the best seat for me. And by the way, I'm actually interested in all of us winning. I mean, I want to win personally, individually, mm -hmm. but I realize that there's greater chances of that happening if I help the team win. So why wouldn't I say, let's switch over from the finance seat to the sales seat? That's a much better fit. Like I want to problem solve there versus flail or do the work of the financial part of a business over here. Yeah. How often have you seen somebody be, or how, how often are they not receptive to that conversation? Everyone has a reaction. So there's always a reaction 100% of the time in terms of receptive. I'm going to, I'm going to translate that Mark to a willingness to listen. Mm -hmm. Cause I think acceptance actually takes some yeah. time. Um, it's probably less than half. Mm -hmm. It's not distant. I mean, it's like 45% of the time Yeah, that somebody says, I get that. As, as long as you can make the evidence clear or have a clear, like, hey, here's what we're trying to do, or here's what this seat needs, or here's, here's what a win looks like last week for this function or for this part of the business, for this market, for this whatever client. And that's why this tool becomes so powerful and useful mm. in conversations like those where we can step back from and say, well, you're the, you're the, so the, we got a director of sales seat. What are the geniuses that would be most appropriate for that seat? Probably galvanizing and probably invention because we need to bring people along and we need to come up with solutions quickly don't necessarily need to discern whether they're the right or best solutions in the moment. There's another step that takes place. Mm -hmm. But in a sales role, why wouldn't you want someone who inspires others, who says to mm -hmm. a prospect, let's go, let's do work together, or we can solve your problem. Here's some examples of how we could, that's the invention piece. And then you're talking to somebody who is an ET, enablement tenacity. I'm like, no wonder they'd struggle in that role. So when you look at it, it's like your gifts are misaligned with the role. The thing is, your gifts aren't misaligned with the organization. They're misaligned with the seat. So let's, let's talk about what's a seat for which your geniuses would be better aligned. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it's the sales manager where you're actually more in the, in the work of doing things. You're holding the salespeople accountable. So now what we just did is it might on an organizational chart, it would certainly be what we might term traditionally a demotion, but let's take, let's take the hierarchical authority title-based definitions of organizational structure out of the conversation. Let's put it in the context of let's get people into seats or roles in which their levels of joy and fulfillment are highest because they will be most productive and they will be joyful and fulfilled. And we had the, even had this conversation before we started about compensation. What was it about? Like 
money. Money. Yeah, yeah they, they, it doesn't work as well as we think. Right, right. Yeah, this is from uh, Predictably Irrational. Uh, Dan Ariely, he's talking about social norms versus market norms and why, how we uh, decide to do things, how we're motivated. And Dan Pink, uh, mm -hmm. Drive, is a great book around that too. <clears throat> and this is from a number of uh, his studies, this Dan Ariely. Money, as it turns out, is very often the most expensive way to motivate people. Uh, social norms are not only cheaper, but often more effective. And he's saying social norms are things like, we love who we work with, we love our clients, we love the kind of work we do, um, we care about, um, you know, these folks, uh, we have a personal it means something to me personally when I treat you good and you treat me good. And those are, you know, it's like, it's like being helpful, having good character, that sort of thing. And that's a motivator. But that, but the minute, uh, for example, like if you're, they, and they did have an experiment around this <clears throat> saying, uh, Hey, would you help me move this? And they had a, like a car or something. They're trying to load something in it. And they would ask people, Hey, can you help me load this thing in there? And they're like, yeah, uh, for a dollar? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm like, and it flipped the whole thing once you brought in the financial component. Um, they had a number of other experiments like that. But um, people want to be nice and they want to be around people they like. And again, joy and fulfillment, you know. And there's something really sweet about helping people. Um, I, years ago, um, I, when my kids were little, we would have, so every once in a while here in Northeast Ohio, our part of the world, we'd have these epic snowstorms, you know, two or three feet of snow, right? And I would get the kids and a couple of them, I have five, I'd get a couple of them in the truck and four-wheel drive and toe straps and stuff like that and shovels. And we would go out and just like prowl for people that were stuck. And would drag them out of the ditch. And it was so fun. And it was just so the kids loved helping and the people loved being helped. And it, I just felt like awesome at the end of the day. Like, man, I got to help all these people. And it, well, there's zero money involved. You know, it's total joy, total, you know, satisfaction, if you will, or fulfillment. fulfillment. And the minute you kind of say, like, hey, let's go try to make 100 bucks towing people out of the ditch, it's like, well, no. You know, that just sounds dumb. This concludes part one of our interview with Preston. Please join us in episode 054 for part two. Thanks for watching and listening to the Business Broken to Smoking podcast. And make sure to click subscribe. She said